Well, good morning, ladies. My name is Mindy Love, and Kathy told you a little bit about me last night. I am from Castle Rock, Colorado, and my husband's the pastor of the Calvary in Castle Rock. And I want to say thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning, this weekend. I get to be with my mom, and we get to teach together, which is such a wonderful privilege. We were able to bring my youngest daughter, who is engaged to be married. She was engaged last month, so um, we are now planning a wedding. Our final wedding. So, so yes. So I'm going to be a little distracted this morning because I notice here to my left is my most favorite thing in the whole wide world. Lifesavers. So there was a, there was a plate of these in our hotel room. There's a plate of them in the room that they took us to when we arrived here. And there is a box of them right next to me. And my grandfather, who left us way too soon, I was 18 years old. It was 1985. You can do the math and figure out how old I am. But... He always kept a roll of peppermint lifesavers in his pocket. You remember? And I remember him getting it out and unwrapping it and handing it to me. Maybe it was a hint that I needed a mint, but <laughs> but here they are distracting me. So so anyhow, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this morning. I want to thank you so much for these beautiful faces. And Lord, their willingness to get up this morning and and just devote this weekend to you. I ask that you bless them for that. I ask that you open all of our hearts to understand your word, that you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear just your wonderful scriptures. We love you, Father, and we praise you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Everyone say... Amen. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles again to Isaiah chapter 40. I am so grateful to have been given this opportunity to really spend time in this passage. And then to know that as you leave today that you will continue to come back and finish the book of Isaiah in the chapters that are specifically in regards to comfort. How wonderful that will be for all of you. So, Isaiah chapter 40. Robert Morgan, in his book, the one that we have been talking about all weekend, the one that you are exhorted to go and purchase in the bookstore, he said in his book, The Strength You Need, he said this about Isaiah 40, which is one of the chapters on strength. He said, chapter 40 helps us visualize the majesty of God. It begins with comfort, as we saw last night, and it ends on wings. In between, it is a description of God unequaled in scripture. And this morning is the in-between. A description of God that I saw these past weeks as I have prepared that is unequaled in scripture. In verse 9, again, we saw last night, behold your God. Behold means to look and see. Look and see the greatness of your God. Now, a quick recap of last night, Isaiah 40 through 66 were written to comfort the returning Jews from captivity. But what is amazing here is that these chapters were written a hundred years before the event would take place. You could imagine that the people would need to be comforted. They'd been exiled from their land. They were unable to worship in their temple. They had been punished for their sins. Maybe they doubted God. Surely the gods of their captive must have been stronger than their God since they were unable to return home, 70 years would have passed. Many of those returning to Israel would have been born in captivity, never having been to their homeland, never having worshipped in their temple, never seen the daily sacrifices. They would need comfort. They would need assurance. And they would need to truly behold their God, to truly know who he is, so that they could put their trust in him. Let's go to verse 12 of chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? There's a question asked. Isaiah starts out with this passage after saying, Behold your God in verse 9, and he says, Who? 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 has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now, this right here is the hollow of your hand. 
And this is not to show that God is some incredible giant of great proportions. This is what is called anthropomorphism. It's a new vocabulary for us all. Anthropomorphism. It's, and this word means speaking of God in human terms so that we can get a tiny glimpse of how great he truly is. But I want you to think of all the waters of the earth. You know, 70% of the earth is water. Think of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean and the Arctic Ocean and the Indian Ocean. All of the seas of the earth, all of the lakes and the river can be measured in the hollow of our God's hand. The skies and the heavens can be measured by the span of his hand. He has calculated the dust of the earth. The dust. Can you imagine the amount of dust that is on the earth? Can you imagine the size of the Swiffer that would be needed to collect all of this dust? He has calculated it. And this requires math. So my mother would not be able to figure out the amount of dust on the earth. He doesn't just know the amount of dust. He has the skill of the greatest mathematician to add up all the dirt on our planet. He also knows the weight of the mountains and the hills. And this is something that man is incapable of doing and knowing the weight of the mountains and the hills. We cannot know. Some are solid. Some are hollow. And we don't know because we can't see inside. But God knows. Who, Isaiah asked? You? Me? Albert Einstein? Some great big giant? Sasquatch? Only God. The answer to the who is only God. Only our God. Our comforter. And he knows because he made it. He made all of it. He is the one who created the waters. The waters that he divided on the second day of creation. Separating them from the earth and calling them the seas. It is he who created their mountains. Which it tells us in the book of Psalms that he established by his strength. And it is he who has calculated the dust of the earth. All that dust on your nightstand, all the dust from the sandstorms, and the dust that he stooped down and created man from, where it says in Genesis 2-7 that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Who? God. It goes on in verse 13 and says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? Another question. Who? The answer is no one. God did not have to attend the university of being God and get a degree in dust counting 101 with a, with a minor in ocean holding. He didn't. Who has directed him? No one. It is he who directs our paths when we put our trust in him. It goes on in verse 14. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who counsels him? No one. He is wonderful counselor, almighty God. He tells us in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Who has taught him or showed him the way? No one. He is our teacher, and it is through him that we gain understanding. In verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing, And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations are before him, are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now these verses shift to being a statement. There's no longer a question being asked here. It is a statement. And as we've answered the questions in the previous verses, we should now have confidence to believe these statements. These statements. 
We answer the questions. It is God and only God who can measure the oceans in the hollow of his hand and calculate the dust and knows the weight of the mountains. It is only him who knows all things. He needs no counselor nor instruction. And because we have answered these questions, we now have the confidence to believe the statement in verse 15 through 17. There is no one who compares to our God. It is he who created all things. It is he who knows all things. And because of this, we can be assured that all the nations, all of them, are like a drop in the bucket to him. As you finish a water bottle or a drink of, a drink of water in your kitchen and you just empty that last drop out into the sink to him, those are all the nations of the earth. There are approximately 200 nations in the world today. They're drops in a bucket to him. They're worthless. They're nothing. And this would be incredibly assuring to the people returning from captivity. They may have been confused as the victories of Assyria and Babylon and Persia, which they had witnessed, and and it was Babylon and, and Assyria that had removed them from their land, that maybe the false gods of the Gentiles and of these nations were stronger than their god. They would have been confused. But this passage serves as a reminder to the people of the greatness of Jehovah, their God. Warren Wiersbe, in his book, Be Comforted, a commentary on Isaiah, says this, when you behold the greatness of God, then you will see everything else in life in its proper perspective. Today, the nations of the world may be of concern to us. Maybe our own nation today is of concern. Issues at the border, issues with the school boards and within our schools, issues with mandates, issues with the supply chain. All we have known and put our trust in in our nation seems to be slipping out of our grasp. Are we safe? Are we secure? What does our future hold? And whenever you ask the what question, you need to change that to the who question. Who holds our future? Not what. Who Are we secure? Ladies, behold your God, the one who created all things, our instructor and counselor, the one who needs no teacher or guide because he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and we know that he is sovereign. And we also know, according to Romans 13, 2, that there was no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist even in our own nation are appointed by God. Can we trust him with our nation? Can we trust him with our future? Absolutely. Absolutely. To whom then were you liken God? Verse 18. It's another question. What's the answer? No one. No one. Hannah, who we see in 1 Samuel, she was barren. She prayed fervently unto the Lord for a child, and when he finally granted her a child, she said in 1 Samuel 2, 2, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Who then, whom then will you liken God? No one. There was no one like our God. Isaiah has been building a very credible case to answer all the questions. He began with the encouragement of comfort. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 40. He goes on and he promises the Messiah. He promises a, a Savior. The eternal security of the word of our God. The word of our Lord endures forever and the promise of a good shepherd. He then gives us the assurance of this comfort by reminding us of God's greatness and that we must look and we must see. Verses 19 through 20 are a grave reminder of the sin not to fall back into. Idolatry. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. As we behold our God, and as they were exalted by Isaiah to behold their God, they were not to forget the futility of idolatry. And they were to remember the severity of their sins. 
the sin that led them to captivity, idolatry. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, as, as the Ten Commandments are being given, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And we need to remember that this part of the book of Isaiah was addressed to those who would return from captivity. It's a foretelling. Isaiah lived a century before this event would take place, but it was idolatry that led them to their captivity, captivity in the first place. In Deuteronomy, the Lord said this to the nation of Israel. He's giving them the law, and he says this to, to the nation, to his chosen people. It shall come to pass, if you simply diligently obey the word of the Lord, your God, to carefully observe all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So it's really simple. Just do what I say, obey my commands, and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And as you go on in, in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, all the blessings are then listed. They were promised that if they simply obeyed God's commandment, that the land would be fruitful, that they would be fruitful, that they would multiply that their livestock would be fruitful, that their enemies would be defeated, and that they would be established as a holy people to God. All they had to do was obey a perfect God. He wasn't giving them a list of things to do that were unfair or unreasonable or didn't make sense. He was a God who was perfect, who loved them, who chose them, who provided for them, and he knew what was best for them. God continues in his instructions in Deuteronomy 28 and says, So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I commanded you this day to the right or the left, or go after other gods and serve them. Other gods were idols. The Lord goes on in verse 15 and he says, But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I commanded you that all these curses will come upon you. And then many curses are listed as to what would happen if they chose to be disobedient. But in verse 47 of Deuteronomy 28, it warns that if they do not obey the Lord their God, if they serve other gods, if they bow down to idols, that they will then one day serve their enemies. Which came to pass because of idolatry. This reason, idolatry, is why they have been in a foreign land, the land of their enemies. And these verses serve as a reminder, but also as a warning to the people, as you're coming back, do not return to such sin. As Isaiah has brilliantly described our God, he reveals the puniness of the idols. Idols require a workman or a goldsmith. But our God needs no instruction and no direction. He is creator. He is not created. These idols needed either silver or gold or wood. But wood can rot. So they had to seek out good trees so that they wouldn't rot or that they would rot slowly. And the craftsman must be skilled so that it does not totter or topple over. But our God can measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Our God is steadfast and immovable and will never totter. It's a subtle yet profound warning to not return to the idolatry that led to captivity. But we have idols too. And it may not be a little statue in our home or in our purse that we keep near, that we pray to or offer incense to in hopes of having our wishes and our whims fulfilled. But we do have our idols. We do. We have things and or people that take our attention away from our God. We may fall into, behold our smartphone. As we stare into the glowing presence for answers to all of our problems and questions, 
And then we continue to return to it for confirmation and accolades and likes. We give it our time and our monthly payments. We outfit it in bedazzled coverings and straps. We accessorize it with rings so that we can hold it on our fingers. We keep it very close and we panic if we can't find it. But our idols may not be the rectangle silently sitting in our purses and pockets. Maybe it is our home. Is it clean and well-decorated and well-furnished? Maybe it is your career. Forgoing your ability to attend church on the weekends. Being the source of your self-worth. Maybe it is a person. Maybe it's your spouse or a child or a grandchild. Maybe it's a mentor or a person of prestige, a pastor or a preacher that you watch on your iPhone or or your galaxy. I don't want to be discriminatory here. (laughs) But look and see. Behold, can any of these things respond correctly to the questions asked by Isaiah? Who holds the water of the earth in their hand? None of the things that are our idols can we answer the question that it is they? It is not the iPhone 11 with dual cameras. It is our God. Isaiah continues, Idols are useless. And therefore he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's almost as if he is saying, wait, what? You don't know? You haven't heard? You don't remember? You haven't always known this? What? How can you doubt God when you have seen his creation? Isaiah is saying, well, then let me remind you. Let me tell you. It is he, verse 22, who sits above the circle of the earth. It is he. It is not an idol fashioned by man. It is he. Now, how could Isaiah possibly have known that the earth's shape was a circle? How? He probably didn't know. There's no way that he could have known. But the Lord, who spoke through Isaiah, who created the earth, revealed to Isaiah that it was in a circle. Christopher Columbus, who I know has had a bad rap, But he is still part of our history. He wrote this in his diary. I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps. It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, I guess it could have been a flat circle, giving nod toward the flat earth society. I don't know why I always have in my mind that those who believe that the earth is flat see it as a square, but it could have been a flat circle. But the Hebrew word for the word circle in this passage, it can be translated vault, which I didn't know this, can also mean sphere. So the earth wasn't just a circle. It was round. Why am I speaking in past tense? (laughs) The earth isn't a circle. Wasn't just a circle. Isn't just a circle. (laughs) It isn't just round, it is a sphere. It is a sphere. And right here in God's amazing word, before there were telescopes or satellites or space shuttles, the world is round. It goes on in verse 22. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And when, and, and when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take, away like stubble, will take them away like stubble. David Guzik said this about these verses. God's power and glory is not only exalted above the inanimate creation, but also over men and power on the earth. When people have political power, such as princes, or legal power, like judges, it is easy for them to think of themselves as gods. But through the message of Isaiah, the Lord sets this straight. 
All God needed to do is to blow on them, and they will wither. Verse 22 echoes back to verse 6 through 8. That all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In verse 25, it says, To him to whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. It's another question. It's the same question that we read in verse 18, but there's a difference here. Isaiah asked the question in verse 18. God asked the question in verse 25. God is now asking. The questions asked up to this point were all asked in the third person. They were asked by the writer. But now God is asking. It's very personal. And the answer, of course, is what? No one. No one. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. The answer reverts back to the third person. However, this answer comes with what I like to call a to-do phrase. There's something for us to do, an action for us to take. We are to lift up our eyes. Lift up your eyes and see another to-do word who created these things. There's no question here, just the obvious, because by now, we should know. The hosts referred here are the stars, the stars in the heavens. God created them. He made them. Genesis 1:14. this is where we see that God created the heavens and the stars, and he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens, and he made the stars also. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And go to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And what is being said here is basically anyone who has chosen to suppress the truth, who has chosen to suppress God, they are without excuse because God reveals himself to everyone, everyone on the planet from the foundation of the world. He reveals himself to everyone through his creation simply by looking up into the heavens. We truly know that there is a creator. Everyone knows there is a God. No one is without excuse. And I believe that children know God. They do. I want you to look at this pie chart that was done by the Global Ministry Center of the Church of the Nazarene. And this is a, this is a chart here that shows at what age people are more likely to come to know Jesus. 85% of people, according to this statistic, come to know Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14 before they start high school. 10% between the ages of 15 and 30. And if you're over 30, statistically, you have a chance of coming to the Lord. 4%. 4%. But children know their God. With their simple faith, they see God. They see him in the grass and the insects. They see him in the sky and in the stars. And they know that he is. But little by little, if they don't receive him, the world chips away at them. And if they don't receive Jesus at a young age, they become increasingly vulnerable to resisting the truth. I know the Holy Spirit is greater than any pie chart and any statistic. But we should not resist the truth that all we have to do is look and see. 
Look to the heavens and behold your God. He made the stars and he knows those status at all times. Stars have quite a place in scripture. We see stars mentioned several times in the book of Psalms. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you ordained. Or he counts the number of the stars. And it tells us in Psalms that it does here that he calls them all by name. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. He calls the stars by name. Not one of them goes missing. The stars, they're lights. They have no beating heart. They have no breath. Yet its creator cares. Just as the good shepherd cares. The one my mom so beautifully portrayed last night. Our good shepherd, Jesus, who takes us in his hand. The hand that flung the stars into the universe and holds us closely to his chest. It tells us in verse 11 of the chapter that we are in that he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs, his children, with his arm. He knows their name, and he knows your name. In John 10, Jesus makes the statement that he is the good shepherd, just as was prophesied in Isaiah 40. And there is much comfort in John 10 about the good shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name. If we are his sheep, he knows our name and he calls us to himself. He gives his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep and he lays his life down for the sheep. He knows the stars and he calls them by name. And he knows you. And I was, as I was contemplating these verses this last week, I was asking, okay, as we're coming to the the conclusion of this passage, the in-between verses, I was asking, okay, if God is all these things, he measures the water with his hands, he needs no instruction, he sees the nation as drops in a bucket, he is like no one, he sits above the circle of the earth, he knows the stars by name, if he is all of these things, then... But as I realized what I was saying, I, 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 I began to understand that my question was wrong. If? If, God? That's like saying, if one plus one equals two. No, one plus one equals two. There's no if. There's no big maybe. There's no question here. There is no if. God is. So because God calculates the dust and needs no counselor, because the nations before him are as nothing, because he has no equal, and because he has created the heavens and the stars, how can you possibly doubt or question? How can anyone possibly doubt or question his love for you? It tells us in Matthew 6.30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, again with no life or breath, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Do you believe this? Do you truly believe that he cares for you? Are not two sparrows, it tells us in Matthew 10, sold for a copper coin, a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. But do you truly believe this? He cares for you. You are of more value than many sparrows. He created you. He breathed life into you. And maybe you are here this morning and you have experienced devastating life, as my mom showed last night, as our family has. Devastating loss. Maybe you have been hurt by somebody that you love and trusted. Maybe you have done something that you believe you are no longer worthy of God's love. Ladies, behold your God. Look and see. There is none like him. He sits above the earth and he numbers the stars. And he loves you. As the Israelites were to take comfort in these verses, they had to know their God. And as we come to know our God and how majestic he is, he truly is how majestic he truly is, we too can find comfort 
But here is the but. Here is the big but. We must look to him. We can't just read these verses and write them down and take notes and then leave. We must continue to behold. We must continue to look and see. We must look to him. We can't look to our circumstances or our loss or our hurt and allow them to cause us to doubt or question our God. And we can't turn to the comfort of the world, which will tell you things like, you need to love yourself more. Just love yourself more. I don't think there's anybody here or anywhere ever who doesn't love themselves. Even when we lower ourselves, it's a form of self-love. The focus is still the, the, it's still the same. It's still on the self. But the world will tell you to be comforted. Just love yourself more. We can't wallow in self-pity and say that we are not worthy or that we are not enough. This is not a place of comfort either. Oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I hurt so much. Oh, I'm not enough. Because that's not the point. The point is that God is worthy and God is enough. Several weeks ago, I was driving in my car and I had my four-year-old grandson in the back seat. He was in his car seat and we were talking about God. And my, my, th- this particular grandson, I have all grandsons, no granddaughters yet. He, he loves to talk about God. And so I take every opportunity we can to talk about God, and I was telling him how much God loves him. Oh, he loves you so much, and he wants you to know him, and he wants you to follow him, and he created you. Oh, he loves you so much. And Oliver said, Nana? And I told him how special he was to God. And he said, Nana? But God is special In his simple faith, he knows the truth. He knows that God loves him and that he is special, but God is so much more than Oliver. And he is worthy of glory and honor and praise and surrender. At four years old, where he has an 85% chance of giving his life to the Lord, he knows, he knows God is special Behold your God. There is no one like him. Lift up your eyes and see your creator. But I want to encourage you, keep your eyes there. Keep them there. When we are hurting, we must keep our eyes on the comforter, and we must persevere, and we must have patience trusting him. We can't take our eyes off of him and put our, put our eyes on what the world wants to offer in its form of comfort. We must keep our eyes on him. If we look up the word patient in the Greek, it means the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. When we look to him, we must persevere in patience and keep our eyes there. But it's going to take perseverance. It's going to take an unswerving purpose And loyalty to faith to stay there, even in the midst of the greatest trials and suffering. But a little further study into the word patience reveals something very, very comforting. And according to the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, patience can also mean to remain under or abide under. And this afternoon, we are going to talk about being able to lift up like the wings of eagles. But we also know in Psalm 61.4 that we are to trust in the shelter of his wings. We are to abide under the safety and the protection and the comfort of his wings. And we are to stay there. We are to stay there. We abide under. This last week I was at a conference in Atlanta and a, and a young woman got up and she was sharing her story. And the, the topic that had just been taught was on perseverance. And she currently is enduring stage four lung cancer. And she was given two years to live, and it had been two and a half years. And she used this description, and she said that abiding under that persevering and being patient in the most devastating of trials. And she just emphasized to everyone, you have to stay there. You have to go there and you have to stay there and you can't peek your head out under the shelter of the wings and say, oh, maybe it's safe now. 
It's only safe under the shelter of his wings. And she made an excellent point. She says, if everything's going hunky-dory right now, just, just abide under his safety so that when those trials and those storms come, you're already there. You already have his comfort. So here we have our in-between verses, and they beautifully reveal to us the magnitude of who God is so that we can now look at who he is and take comfort. But remember, we must believe them to be true. We must live by them. And when we do that, we will truly find comfort in our God. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We praise you and worship you for the God that you are. Lord, there is no one like you. Lord, there is no one like you. But you know our names. You hold us close. You give us comfort. May we all abide under the shelter of your comfort. Amen. Well, hello, everybody. I, I get the pleasure of introducing um, Noah to you, our eagle, and his handlers. So there's a couple little things to um, tell you about before they come up and before I tell you about his handlers. Um, first, we are allowed to clap, which is really good. Um, we aren't allowed any flash photography. If you've brought any mice or frogs, keep them in your pocketbook. Um, uh, so they're very excited. This is going to be really, really cool. And if anything comes up like like he flaps his wings or he has something to say, we, she said, just be a little careful that we don't go, like, scream. I've been trying to contain myself for weeks, so <laughs> this is not easy. So, um, so uh, first I want to give a shout-out to um, uh, Laura Houston. She is the director of education at the Elmwood Park Zoo, and she has been tremendous at answering emails and keeping in touch with us and really getting this program together. Um, and then I also I'll first introduce Laura Soder. Laura is um, that th- her title is she's the manager of animal ambassador engagements. Uh, yeah, well, I was just a teacher. But <laughs> so so um, Laura is a, a Delaware Valley University graduate, and she's been with the Elmwood Park Zoo for five and a half years. Now, at the zoo, she's responsible for managing the training and programming for um, their animal ambassador collection. So that collection includes, of course, no, of course, eagles and porcupines, striped skunks, snakes, and several species of, uh, of other birds. They have a black vulture. They have a great horned owl. So she'll be here to share quite a great deal. And she'll be, she's in a green shirt, and she'll be uh, holding Noah most of the time. Um, and then Meg, Megan Oyer is also with us, and she's an educator. She's a graduate of Keystone College, and she's been with Elmwood Park Zoo for a year and a half. Now, as part of her job, uh, Megan uh, assists with the husbandry and care of ambassador animal collections, as well as delivering programs like she'll do today for schools and, and various groups. So um, the other thing, did I always say no flash photography? Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, okay. <laughs> So um, without further ado, we're going to have them come out, and um, they have a little teeny bit of setup to do, and then we'll be good to go. My name is Laura. This is Megan. We are Noah's Handlers here today, and thank you for that introduction. Um, We are going to be sharing a little bit of eagle information for you guys and specific background for him. I'm going to be handling him. He's going to come out over here. Um, We're going to try to do this in tandem. Sometimes I have to direct my focus a little bit more on Noah, so we'll see how things go. This is his first time in this kind of scenario, so I appreciate you guys (laughs) being our guinea pigs today um, and helping us out. This is a good training opportunity for him. Um, I will be having him hang out over here. You might see he'll be getting some of his breakfast and lunch today, so uh, that's how we make sure he's having a positive experience. So I'm going to pull him out, and then we're going to go ahead and get started, okay?
Good job, buddy. All right. So this is our friend Noah. Um, so a little just background information about Noah here. Um, he was born in Maine, and at just eight weeks old, he suffered an 80-foot fall um, from his nest. Um, and he actually fell on his head, so he had to go to a rehab facility to recover some for some brain and some eye damage um, at a, the Hospital of Large Animals at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Um, so after being treated, they deemed him non-releasable, so that means that his injuries were so much that he wouldn't be able to live in the wild um, and function properly. Um, so since he was deemed unreleasable, um, he has to stay in human care. Um, and the Elmwood Park Zoo acquired him in December of 2008. Um, so he's here with us doing education programs like this one here today, um, where he gets to teach people about eagles and different conservation messages. That's right. Now, Noah belongs to a group of birds called the Birds of Prey. So eagles um, are included in that, as well as hawks, owls, and falcons. And they all have some similar traits. So we're going to go through today and share some of those special adaptations that Noah has that fits in with that role they play in the ecosystem. So they are going to be predatory. They're going to hunt for their food. And they are very, very well designed for doing this. Um, And as you can see, um, they are also expert flyers. And this animal is definitely probably one of the most iconic here in our country, um, as well as across the world, because they are very large and very majestic looking. Um, But behind all that imagery is also some real power that they do have. So we're going to talk a little bit about all the different aspects that help him to become a a good hunter, like his talons, his beak, his ability to fly. I didn't quite train him to do that on cue, but... (laughs) Um, And, of course, their eyesight. So Megan's going to kind of go through some of those different aspects, and I'll chime in a little bit as well. Yeah, so the first thing we're going to talk about is his wingspan, which he was showing off um, a little bit there for us. Um, So eagles can have a wingspan up to six to seven feet from tip to tip. Um, And they really rely on soaring more than actual flapping of their wings because it conserves energy for them. It doesn't um, use up as much energy. So they use their high, um, long wings to soar up very high, um, and they use energy. um, The sun heats the earth, and it causes columns of air, um, and they use those columns of air to soar up um, super high across the landscape. Um, And it's especially helpful when you're traveling a very long distance. You don't want to continuously flap your wings. Um, And these guys can fly as high as up to 10,000 feet. So, you know, they're not really going to try to want to flap all the way up there. So they're really going to use these air circulating currents um, to allow them to fly up super duper high. Their wings are also really powerful and strong. Um, They can catch prey that's almost half of their body weight, which is four to five pounds. Um, So those wings are super powerful and strong to help them carry away um, that food. And these guys can fly up to 30 miles per hour, um, and they can dive up to 100 miles per hour, so from all the way up high um, to dive down to catch their prey. Yeah, as Megan said, they have a pretty spectacular wingspan. So Noah's wingspan is around six feet, and he is fully capable of flying. Now, again, he's not going to fly around in here today. He's not fully trained to do that. And part of that has to do with his his eye injury. Um, He would probably have some trouble navigating, but he is completely able to fly. So he has done a little bit of training in that in short distances to keep him nice and healthy and give him some exercise. And as Megan mentioned, they can carry off prey that is close to their own weight. So Noah weighs around eight pounds. So for him to pick something up that's four to five pounds is kind of like the equivalent of us lifting off with something that's 50, 60, 70 pounds. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. Now, they're not always going to do that. They're probably going to opt for some smaller prey because it expends a lot of energy. And as Megan was saying, their wings are designed to help them be efficient. They don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time flapping and exerting that energy. So instead, they're going to take care of the weather, take advantage of the weather conditions. They do migrate short distances in some areas. In this part of the world in Pennsylvania, they typically don't travel a whole lot, but you'll often see them flying around more <laughs> on um, 
in the wintertime because their food sources are a little more spread out. So they do migrate short distances, not quite as long as some other birds of prey. So the next thing um, that eagles have that's pretty sharp is their eyesight. Um, so their eyesight can see up to four to eight times better um, than ours is. They have 25 um, vision, um, which means that they can see um, objects that are 20 feet away as opposed to us only seeing five feet away clearly. Um, so they have a, a wider range of being able to see. And they also have two focal points in their eyes, which allows them to see things a little more clearly so they can see not only straight ahead at a distance, um, but they can see to the sides as well. So it gives them a little bit of a better peripheral. Um, And they're going to use their eyes to really target in on their food, which is mostly fish. So as they're flying over water, you know, it can be very hard to look down and see a fish swimming in the water. So they have this excellent eyesight that allows them to almost hit their target every time. You can see Noah's spending a lot of time looking around. Even though he is missing an eye, he still is incredibly alert and sensitive to all the things around him. And his one eye is far superior to our two combined. So um, that's something we always have to keep in, keep in mind when we're working with him, is that he perceives the world a little differently than we do. Um, as Megan mentioned, they have two focal points in their eyes. So what that allows them to do when they're hunting is to adjust their eyesight and their um, depth perception basically a lot more quickly than we can. So it's almost like looking through binoculars, but being able to adjust the focus in an instant. So he can look into the distance and figure out what that little creature is. And then he can also kind of turn his head to the side and see movement and identify something at the same time. So it really helps them to latch on to food options, especially in a water scenario where you're looking through the water. Um, Now one, again, his one eye, you know, puts him at a disadvantage, but he is incredibly good at looking around and seeing things. And you'll see he does kind of a little bit of a head tilt to adjust his focus. And that mean, that is just one of his ways of kind of adjusting for only having one eye. Eagles do have incredibly flexible necks. They can turn their heads um, about 200 degrees around. And that allows them to also move their neck and head independently from their body. So when they're flying, they can keep their body in the same trajectory, still moving in the same direction while they're turning their head to find and follow their food, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. (laughs) So some other interesting eagle facts um, is that eagles will typically mate for life. Um, So if you've ever seen eagles flying around in your neighborhood, it's probably a mating pair that's living somewhere um, in your neighborhood because they're going to stay in the same area Um, They have memories of where they build their nests even when they migrate. Um, And their nests are incredibly large. So he's an incredibly large bird, and you have to imagine two of them sometimes sitting in there, plus with eggs and babies. Um, So their nests can be up to 9.5 feet long and 20 feet deep. Um, So it's almost the size of a small car. Um, So you have to imagine, you know, two of this size eagle, female eagles are even larger than the male, so a female would be larger than Noah is here today. Um, So sitting in there, and they usually have um, two two or three eggs at a time, so you have to imagine those eggs plus them in this deep, wide nests. Now once the babies are born, both parents take um, turns taking care of the babies, Um, They don't push the babies out of their nests or anything. They do encourage them to leave by placing food in different places to allow them to kind of hop out. Um, But they will leave on their own around um, 10 to 12 weeks old. Um, They'll usually hang around their parents for a couple months, one to two months, to kind of learn how to fly, watch their parents um, figure out their their wings, how how they work. Um, and then both, like I said, both parents are going to care for those babies. So they're a mating pair that take care of their children um, throughout their entire lives. So they'll either take turns sitting on the nest, uh, incubating the egg, while the other one flies off to get the food, and then they'll, they'll kind of swap. So it's definitely um, a family-oriented sort of thing there. Yeah, and as we had mentioned earlier, Noah has been under human care pretty much his whole life. He fell out of the nest at eight weeks old, so he was still rather young, and he is 20 years old now. So he has been with humans for quite a long time. Um, So he never really truly learned how to be a wild eagle either, which is part of the reason why he's under our care. Now, that does not necessarily mean that Noah is anything like a pet (laughs) or super cuddly and friendly. Um, 
we have a pretty good relationship, but that is, is a lot of it is training and trust and, and things and respect for each other. Um, but they do make amazing parents and we've actually been finding um, that there's a lot more eagle nests popping up in different places unexpectedly nowadays because their population has made a really incredible comeback. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but they are more likely to, to nest in areas near water. So if you live near a body of water here in the Philadelphia area, it's not hard to live near a body of water. <laughs> We've got the Schuylkill and the Delaware and all kinds of lakes you're going to be likely to have an eagle pair. And um, some of that has been helped by preserving spaces along the water. And also in many parks, they've built platforms and things to encourage eagles to nest. So they do like to have a very large structure, as you can imagine, a 20-foot deep nest, nine feet across. Um, A small car needs a, a lot of support. And that was one of the issues that was facing this species when they were on the brink of extinction was just not having proper nesting sites because we had deforested a lot of our our area in this um, part of the United States. So that's an amazing thing that has helped is just providing them those nesting spaces. Yeah, so especially those nesting spaces, like she said, near water um, because... Eagles mostly eat fish, so that's their, their main source of food, but they'll also eat small mammals, waterfowl, you know, um, amphibians and reptiles, and they may even steal food from other animals or scavenge food. Um, so while they do prefer fish in the wild, they are very opportunistic. Um, so that means that they'll eat just about anything they can find. Um, So they have specialized adaptations to help them be successful predators. Um, So if you take a look at him, he's got a very sharp beak. Um, It's hooked, and it acts just like a fork and knife. He doesn't have hands. He can't cut up his food or anything like that. Um, So he uses his sharp beak there to kind of tear it apart. And to hold on to his food, he's going to use his talons. Um, His talons are very sharp. That's why Lara is wearing that large glove there. Um, because they have not only sharp talons, but a a really heavy force that they use when they can close down with those talons. Um, So he's going to use the heavy force to hold down on the food and then his fork and knife um, beak to kind of tear up the food and eat it. They also have some really specialized feet in the the bottoms of their feet. So it's not just the talons and the pressure that they can exert. Uh, Megan was mentioning that force. They can squeeze at around 800 pounds per square inch. To put that in perspective, um, the average human squeezes around eight pounds per square inch. So as she mentioned, the very fashionable leather glove is important for part of my job. Um, But they also have a very rough exterior on the bottom of their feet. They have special um, skin cells that make them really, really grippy so that they can hold on to fish because that is their preferred food. As Megan mentioned, they will scavenge, um, especially in the wintertime. That's the best opportunity for you to see an eagle generally away from water because they will extend their search area and they will often find roadkill and things like that to eat. So they're not picky eaters. Um, And that whole stealing food from others actually is um, part of a folklore story that maybe some of you have heard. There's a little part truth to it and part folklore. Um, When the United States was deciding on a national symbol, you know, which animal did we want to use to represent our new country, uh, there were a lot of very important people that got together and made suggestions. And the eagle, the bald eagle, came up because they are indigenous to our area. They're only found in North America, so Canada, um, United States, and a little bit of northern Mexico. So that was a pretty cool thing. They're also beautiful, um, majestic, strong, impressive, all the things that we kind of wanted our country to reflect. But there was someone who was opposed to this decision, and that was Benjamin Franklin. And he thought that the turkey, the wild turkey, would be a better option. And his reasoning behind this was because he said bald eagles are cowards. They will often run from smaller birds, which is true. Um, On occasion, small flocks of birds will do what's called mobbing, and they'll chase larger birds of prey. And eagles choose, you know, fly over fight. They think it's not really quite worth their time, so they seem like cowards. Um, He said they were untrustworthy because they would steal food from other animals, which, again, is true. You know, they kind of take advantage of their situations. Um, and uh, unsavory because they would eat things that were already dead. So they are scavengers at times. So those were all of his reasons as to why the bald eagle should not represent 
um, the United States of America. Obviously, he was outvoted because we do currently use this eagle as our symbol. Um, but it's just a fun little piece of folklore and story that kind of goes along and does actually fit their, their type, their niche in the ecosystem pretty well. <laughs> um, so the last thing we kind of wanted to talk about was um, their feathers and their molting process. Um, so Noah is an adult, so he does have those beautiful um, white feathers in the back and the white feathers on his head, um, and they'll usually get those adult feathers around five or six years old. Um, so that's when they start to grow in those, those beautiful adult feathers. But before that, they're all just kind of a sort of brownish color. Um, and they will continue to molt their feathers um, throughout their entire lives by replacing old, worn-out feathers um, with new ones, ones that aren't damaged. So the new ones will kind of push the old, damaged ones um, out of the way as they grow in. Um, and it allows them to maintain a healthy coat of feathers there, um, which in turn allows them to fly better, helps regulate temperature better, um, protection from the weather, and things like that, um, which in turn can extend their life. Um, so it's usually triggered by a change in the seasons. Um, so eagles will usually molt their feathers um, not all at once. It's usually a couple at a time falling out. Um, so that way they can continue to fly and stay safe so they're not just molting all of their feathers at once and they're kind of just stuck in one spot. Um, they'll, they'll molt over a longer period of time. That's right. And Noah's feathers do, um, just like a bird in the wild, do molt out every year. Uh, they don't go through a complete molt. Some birds will actually molt out almost whole sections of their body at a time. We have screech owls at the zoo that go through what we call a catastrophic molt because they lose almost all the feathers on their head at once, which is pretty scary looking. Um, <laughs> and uh, wouldn't be super conducive for a bird like an eagle, you know, to have a, a naked head for a while. Screech owls can kind of hide out for that time. Um, so they do lose their feathers in pairs, though. So if he loses a, a set of feathers on one side of his wings, he'll lose the other side as well so that he can remain balanced while he's flying and hunting, which is pretty awesome. And, of course, they do help with uh, temperature control. They usually will molt out their feathers closer to summertime because it's a lot warmer and they don't need quite as much um, down and, and thickness, whereas they kind of molt in that nice new feather set in the wintertime when they are going to be outside and exposed to the elements. So those feathers and the molting process, it's a very important part of their overall health and life cycle. Mm -hmm. So Noah here is a part of our Education Ambassador Collection. So he teaches um, people about wildlife conservation just like um, here today. Um, but he also has another important job. He's actually one of the live mascots for the Philadelphia Eagles team. Um, so he attends all of their home games um, and all of their training camps and things like that. Um, so he's got a very important role. He's kind of famous, which is pretty cool. Um, so <laughs> Noah here does some really important work um, with conservation and education. Yeah, and as part of that role, um, we love to talk about eagles and their conservation success story. So the, not only are they an iconic animal, many of us recognize them. You know, they are a symbol for our country. They're a symbol in a lot of our literature for our religious beliefs, things like that. They're an incredible animal found throughout the, our, our human you know, lives and history. But they're also one of our best success stories when it comes to making changes in a positive way to help animals in the wild and to help preserve our natural world. So eagles in the 1970s were on the endangered species list. They were almost extinct across our entire uh, country. So to put that in perspective of numbers, um, in the early 1970s, there were around 1,000 eagles left in the entire United States. As of last year, we are back up to over 300,000 eagles. So a pretty impressive difference, but... A thousand is not a whole lot, and unfortunately, the main reason for this decline has to do with human behavior. Unfortunately, there was a pesticide called DDT, and it was used to kill off bugs, you know, important to protect our crops. That's an important part of our, our lives. But this particular chemical would get into the food uh, chain. It would wash off the crops, or it would get eaten by bugs, which would get eaten by, you know, frogs, which would get eaten by fish, and eventually eaten by eagles. Now, the pesticide itself didn't kill the eagles or really cause health damage to the individual adult, but what would happen is they would go to lay eggs, and the eggshells would become too brittle. So as soon as the mother eagle would sit on the nest, those eggshells would crack. And if your eggs are cracking, your young aren't hatching, your population starts to decline very quickly. 
That coupled with the fact that they were losing habitat, you know, again, they like to live near water, they need large roosting sites, and even in some parts of the country they were hunted or persecuted, people thought they were going to come and eat their small children and pets and, you know, livestock on occasion. All of that culminated in them being almost completely gone. So our national symbol, this amazing, incredible species that we, you know, have throughout our human history and literature was almost gone. So thankfully, humans realized we took action. We made some special laws. We protected them across our country. They're protected in other parts of North America as well. We established breeding programs through zoos and different scientific institutions. And most importantly, we banned DDT, which was also impacting other bird species such as the osprey and the peregrine falcon, two other iconic birds. And through all this, we have seen over the last 50 years an incredible increase. As I said, over 300,000 eagles nesting here in the United States compared to that 1,000. So especially as he is a mascot for the Philadelphia Eagles, I like to always share that the eagles as a species made a comeback in less time than it took the eagles as a football franchise to win a Super Bowl. So... (laughs) And this is just, you know, again, an amazing story of what we can do and accomplish. Our small actions, our small changes can make a difference. And as stewards of the natural world, you know, that's an important message for us to remember. So Noah and all of his other ambassador friends at the Elmwood Park Zoo help us to share that message in different areas. So we're visiting here today. You know, even when we go to the Eagles football games, we're telling people about conservation and Noah's story and how we can prevent um, other animals from suffering the same fate. So he has an incredible job, and we're incredibly lucky to get to work with him in this job. And I just want to thank you guys for letting us share that with you all today. All right, guys, we're going to let him have his breakfast, and then he's going to go back in. (laughs) We'll do a couple more if you guys want to try to take some photos. He looks beautiful with those big wings out. (laughs) So he's getting some mice and rats. (laughs) Yummy stuff. Didn't didn't bring enough for everyone. I figured he didn't want to share. (laughs) Didn't think you guys would be interested. Yeah, you're welcome to do a little round of applause if you want to, if you're welcome to. He's busy eating a snack. I appreciate you guys being nice and calm and quiet. It's always nice to have um, a little bit of a a grown-up crowd. He sees a lot of younger kids and things. (laughs) All right, good job, buddy. Uh, We have done a little bit of flight training with him, um, short-distance flight training, but... When he's in the zoo, he does have an enclosure that he stays in because he can truly fly. Um, that is also why he wears this little leash when he comes out, just in case, because I don't want him to just fly on off and land on one of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he does get an opportunity to, to flap and fly a little bit, and we're hoping in the future to do a little bit more of that with him. Yeah. He eats the whole rat. <laughs> oh yeah, we can post for a quick photo. <laughs> So an eagle can carry something that's around uh, five to six pounds, but more likely than not, it's not worth the effort to come and eat something out of your yard. For there, A lot of birds of prey kind of get that reputation, and that's because occasionally it, it does happen. Um, but if you think about it, carrying something off in a place where they're very at risk, you know, in a human area where you could come outside or maybe you're hanging around, they really have to be desperate for that. So not likely. They're likely to eat something else that they find that's already deceased before they would necessarily come and and bring anything out of your yard. They can live well into their 30s and 40s. So Noah is a full um, adult eagle, but he will hopefully be around for a little bit longer with us. All right, guys, thank you so much. Thank you, guys.